Okay, guys, welcome to episode number 15 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Um, today, we are joined by Sean Mishka from um, Football Beyond the Stats, his own personal blog, and also uh, Movement Mastery. And he's also an NFL movement and strength coach. Um, so a lot of strings to his bow. He's the second American on the podcast this week. And um, Sean, I have to say thanks very much for uh, being on the podcast because I'm, I'm a massive fan of the stuff that you put out. Kira, I definitely appreciate that, and I appreciate your audience uh, listening into what I have to say because I think there's a lot of parallels in regards to what I do, as well as then what many of your listeners probably are attempting to do with their own athletes as well. And you are, you know, I've, I've stolen a ton of stuff from you, so um, hopefully after this, people people will do the, the same. I hope so as well. That's what I'm here for, and uh, obviously that's what we're all trying to do as we advance this whole field that we're all a part of. So. You know, kind of people who may not be aware of you, do you want to kind of start off and, and tell people how you got to where you are and um, how you kind of develop your philosophy and, and where you are today? Absolutely, Kier. Uh First and foremost, this is going to come as a shock maybe to some when they see me on the, the little Skype screen here, but I'm a former national level bodybuilder, so I used to be 275 to 280 pounds at wow. five foot six <laughs> and a half. So I used to be a house. And uh, ironically enough, I had started training a lot of American football players at that point because American football is really where my passion is. I, I love watching it, and I love everything about it. I love everything it brings to the table. Um, so when I retired from bodybuilding, one would think that I had a very uh, bodybuilding or even powerlifting-based mentality towards the development of football athletes. Uh, ironically enough, I kind of did to a certain degree, at least in comparison to that which what I possess now. When I retired from bodybuilding, I began this facility that I'm sitting in right now, which just happens to be right across the road from the Minnesota Vikings National Football League headquarters. So uh, knowing my football background or my ideas towards football and my passion towards it, it was a natural progression to get a lot of those athletes in here because we're literally right down the road and right across the road. Well, when a lot of the NFL players started contacting me, one in particular, my very first one, I had noticed like how far he had fallen. He had been in the leagues uh, for three years at that point. He was already a starting player in the league. He came to me and his numbers of kind of those motor qualities, those general motor abilities that we all like to quantitatively test for and measure had fallen off quite drastically from his time at the Combine just three years prior. So the NFL Combine, which is kind of that litmus test or measuring stick when guys are entering the league, his testing numbers had fallen quite drastically. His 40 time, his pro agility, his vertical, his, his broad jump, all of those things the numbers and the quantitative values had gotten reduced. So as a sh any good physical preparedness coach or strength and conditioning professional would do, I looked at those things and I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy. This is going to be money. He had fallen off considerably. I'm just going to chase those quantitative values and numbers. We're going to increase them to be where it is that they used to be, if not higher. And in the meantime, he's going to raise his level of mastery and his skill acquisition, and, and I'm going to take over the National Football League in the process. <laughs> well, lo and behold, Kier, what happened is, is 
I did all those things. He and I did all those things, rather. We increased his vertical jump by seven and a half inches. Wow. He increased wow. his broad jump by 15 inches. Uh, he gained lean muscle mass. He decreased body fat. His 40 went down by a quarter of a second. So did his pro agility. All of these things happened with general quantitative values. And then I sent him on his way to go to training camp. And I started getting calls from him. And he's like, you know, having little check-ins. And he's like, Sean, you know, everything's okay. Everything, you know, is, is fine and dandy. And that wasn't really the response that I was expecting from him or desiring from him. And then I thought, okay, maybe this guy is just being modest. And I watched his first preseason game. And Kier, as I watched him, I thought to myself, what in the hell did I do? Because there really was no change whatsoever from the guy that I had seen on film the previous three years and the player that I sent to that preseason or that, that training camp time. And I thought, okay, maybe it's just going to take a little bit more time to acquire and to utilize some of those physical preparedness qualities out in the field of play. But as the season progressed, I realized that one preseason game was just a microcosm of everything else that was just about to happen. So I, I kind of had at one of those moments of what I refer to as a Robert Frost moment, where you can go down one road or you can go down the other. I could continue to go down the road that I knew so well from a powerlifting, bodybuilding, even general physical preparedness standpoint, or I could go down this other road, which I felt was maybe the path that I needed to go on to look at movement that was happening organically in sport in a much different light and through a much different lens than what most strength and conditioning professionals are accustomed to looking at it. So I started really breaking down the movement patterns and the movement solutions and the movement strategies that the athlete is organically coming up with based on the problems of the sport. But in the context of the sport, which most of us aren't really accustomed to doing as strength and conditioning professionals or physical preparedness coaches, we like to look at things that are quantitatively testable. And we don't necessarily always look towards ideas of true movement skill acquisition, transfer or retention of things that we're utilizing in the training facility, which where it needs to count, which is in the sport. Because really at the end of the day, your athletes, my athletes, anybody's athletes who are listening, all want one thing. They want to get better in one place and one place only, and that's in the sport. So even though they think they care about you know, decreasing their 40 or increasing their broad jump or even their squat, their bench, their power clean or whatever, that's really not what it is. That's a means to an end. But yet how we're using those means to an end might need to be adjusted based on what we're seeing in the environment. And so at that point in 2008, 2009-ish, I started to really break down film, the film of what was happening frame by frame, play by play for my athletes to try and determine how they're coming up with movement solutions. So we're talking about issues of not only the biomechanics. So what biomechanics are they coming up with as part of their movement solution, but also more specifically their brain and their behavior. So kind of what I refer to as the three B's of movement, and, and a guy by the name of Stephen Scott came up with this idea, the three B's of, of movement skill, brain, behavior, and biomechanics. So most strength and conditioning professionals stop at the biomechanics, and this is a major problem that I have. So once I realized how much 
more in-depthly, I needed to go into the actual movement skill and what is occurring on the field, what's organically occurring on the field, I started to look towards a more dynamical systems theory type approach of looking at the organism within the environment and how they have to carry out the task based on the constraints of each one of those three, the organism, the task, and the environment. And so from there, I kind of started to formulate my movement philosophy, which was taken from numerous different places. Um, some old school stuff, Nikolai Bernstein, Carl Newell, Yuri Verkoshansky, Anatoly Bondarchuk. Some of those ideas were stuff that really started to resonate within my new philosophy. And I started to realize maybe how backwards we were, at least here in the States, in regards to our approaches towards truly acquiring better movement skill on the field when and where it counts. And, and that could apply to a track or a, a hockey rink or wherever it is your athlete plays their sport. But everything started to s uh, sort of stem around that performance and their technical execution of movement. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question or if it started to kind of maybe open up even a bigger can of worms because um, I get confused sometimes <laughs> even when I start talking about it. Well, I think that that's, that's one thing you've touched on. And, you know, you said strength coaches really like that stuff that you can measure. And it's also because everyone is comfortable in the gym. And that's why on, on the limited times that I've had to interview or assess coaches, uh, we'll, we'll spend 30 minutes in the gym and two, two hours on the field because it's – that's where I think coaches really, really make a difference because as you've written on your blog, beyond that first year or two of training, really all that stuff just supports what you're doing on the field to, to create that transfer. So yeah, and you're absolutely right because at the end of the day, if we're trying to impact the performance that is happening organically when we're not there, we have to improve upon ownership and virtuosity to truly make or elicit masterful movement to occur. And so... Our role as a coach, whether it's physical preparedness or I start to call myself, as you know, uh, as a movement coach or a movement skill acquisition coach, uh, we have a huge role to impact things through not only our drill prescription, but also our instruction and our feedback. Because if we're trying to elicit mastery, we're trying to elicit ownership, and we're trying to really make a virtuous mover, someone who's in control through the ever-changing environment or conditions of the sport task, we have to make sure that we're very careful in regards to everything we're doing and how we're making things transfer and then be, be retained as well. Yeah. Now, now talking about that, that idea of, of movement quality, um, we talked a little bit before we came on and started recording, and I said it's one of those things where you just see an athlete sometimes and you think, that guy's got it. Now, mm -hmm. that's, that's quite difficult sometimes again because we're in we're in this quantitative business as, as strength coaches and people want numbers and they want something that they can hold in their hand and, and make their decisions with how mm -hmm. do we as coaches take that thing that's movement quality and how can we define it and and quantify it so that other people can understand it yeah i think first and foremost you know there's a couple of things because a lot of times people think movement quality simply deals with the speed of execution when in reality, movement quality comes down to not only speed of execution, but also efficiency and then effectiveness of the movement strategy. So the efficiency of the technical execution and the proficiency of their decision-making and their movement strategy. So how effective did that movement strategy actually be that they were employing? 
So it becomes a bigger can of worms than just simply looking at an athlete moving from point A to point Z and how quickly they did it. But how did they actually do it? And was it one of authenticity? You know, this is a topic that if you looked around my blog or even Movement Mastery, my, my site at OptimizeMovement.com, what you'll see is me frequently talk about this topic of authentic movement signatures. I think in this industry and profession, we've gotten too accustomed to just saying that there's one technical model and that technical model is going to work for each and every individual performer. When in reality, what we find through such things as uh, really models of skill acquisition, or if we look at the best athletes, we realize that they might have very different biodynamic structures towards coming up with that solution. So they're employing their brain, their behaviors, and their biomechanics in different ways to accomplish the same movement goal. So I think when we look at movement efficiency or some of the fundamentals or the, the quality of movement if you will, and the mastery of it, it has to involve speed, efficiency, and effectiveness, as well as then how we go about impacting that. So in the ever-changing conditions of sport, that athlete can still perform just as well when they're in an open environment versus when they're in a closed one. And this is something that we see a major problem with. I'll go out and watch uh, like right now, for example, as, I, as we talked about kind of uh, off air or off camera, is I've been going to training camps and I'll go to my guys' training camps and I see the practices of movement that they're performing and it just makes me cringe. Like, it's ridiculous. Everything is being done in a blocked fashion and then when the athlete gets in the live time, whether it's seven on seven or small-sided games of nine on seven or then in the full 11 on 11 scrimmages, that athlete who was performing so well in that closed task and drill has not a flipping clue what the hell they're doing when they get out in the chaos in the environment of sport. They're like, what in the hell just happened here? Because all of a sudden when chaos enters the mix, we see who that athlete really is. We see what's stuck, and that athlete doesn't have the ability to do what they know is best. They start to do what they know best. And that's kind of the paradigm that we come to there, is that if we didn't train that athlete in a way to where it was a solidified stable pattern, but yet it was still flexible to the ever-changing environment of sport, we basically effed them over. Like, we've yes. screwed yes. them over, and they're never going to be able to have true ownership. So for me, it's about taking that athlete, guiding their discovery towards where their attention and their awareness needs to be, again, not only biomechanically, but their sensory and perceptual cognitive processing, and how that leads to the motor control that we're after. And that really can take place, obviously, not only through our drill prescription in the use of not only blocked drills, but random drills and more variable conditions, but also here through our instruction as well as our feedback. So what I see is oftentimes coaches try to make like this group of monsters that are just robotic in nature, but they don't have authenticity. And they also aren't virtuous, meaning they can't change in the ever-changing environments of sports. So they don't know how to change when the task changes. And so they don't know how to change their performance or execution of that movement and that movement solution to resemble or overcome and solve the problem. And so for me, you know, we're trying to look at guiding the discovery, and we can do that again through drills and communication and, and this is something that I think we need to all look at as a profession. 
Uh, I believe that you guys as a whole internationally are doing a better job than we here are in America because we have a whole lot of blocked drills happening here and a lot of blocked practice structure because we think that perfect practice makes perfect per se, but I have this different idea of perfect practice. Perfect practice can be messy and it should be messy because that athlete is looking to kind of calibrate their human movement system around the exact environment that sport performance and movement is going to have to take place in. So again, I probably just opened up a whole new can of worms. I don't even flip and remember the first question that you had there. <laughs> so hopefully I actually addressed it and answered it. Well, it, it's funny you say that because there was a situation I was in this morning. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of time and, um, we, we needed to get a little bit of a speed stimulus in the guys just to make sure that they're exposed to those forces. They're not going to break themselves. And it, it, it really wasn't a, a teaching or a learning opportunity. It was just to make sure they, they, they get those forces. They're not going to break. But we did try and do, say, 15 minutes, just a little bit of movement practice to to get the guys ready before we did our, our, our max speed efforts. We did some accelerations like 20 meters. And, you know, like you said, practice, we did some A, a skips, B skips, all this stuff, looked great. The moment we put them in a situation to race against one another, because we think that gets them in a good situation to get up to 100% of effort sure. out the window, you know? And I think personally as a coach and definitely as, as coaches, like you said, it's being able to, to bridge that gap between it looks great in a close practice, but once we add competition or they have to think about where they are in the pitch, where their teammates are, we, it's not an effective program until we see the improvements in those conditions. Bingo. Amen. And, and that's probably the biggest thing that I saw when I started using the in-sport movement as my screening tool. That's the thing that I started to see, you know, where you really see where the rubber meets the road and those performers that you mentioned earlier, those guys that you can watch and you know just have it, they usually don't change much in their technical execution from that closed environment to the open one. And that's really what we should be after, right? Because as the, the example that you just brought up, it doesn't really matter how they perform on any day but game day. And any day but when they're on the field or on the pitch or on the, on the rink or track or wherever it is that we need them to perform. And I think if we all go and do our part towards trying to change some of the practices and the idea of perfect practice so it's more error-centered so the athlete can learn error detection to then later learn error correction, that should be one of our goals. Not only of the drills that we're utilizing, but their execution within the drill, as well as in our instruction to the athlete, as well as in the feedback we offer. So it becomes this whole can of worms for us as a movement specialist, as we really try to like perfect or optimize their art of movement within the sport demands. Yeah. So talking about good movement we've said you know what constitutes good movement do you think there are some things that are fundamental to all great movers or are there certain movement patterns which every elite football player should master or every elite rugby player yeah i think and that's maybe the best question that you could potentially ask because I think it's a question that we really need to start to address i made the mention before in regards to this whole technical model of certain fundamental movement skills that we've all looked to and we try to match. Now, what I will say is that 
even though I mentioned earlier that there's different strategies for overcoming the movement problem, so different individuals are going to perform differently depending on who they are and their individual strengths and weaknesses, their anthropometric features. Some of the, if you look at dynamic systems theory or dynamical systems theory, you'll hear the idea of attractors versus fluctuations. And I think that's one thing that we have to continue to think about, that there will always be some biomechanical truths that need to occur. But we have to look at operating within certain bandwidths of that movement. So whether if we're breaking down the display of that movement skill globally, so we look at a whole uh, acceleration pattern, or then locally in the local aspects or parts of it, you know, where the hip is, where the knee is, where the, the body angle is in acceleration, the first, second, third step, whatever it is. So we can find certain attractors that are going to be biomechanical truths that essentially should apply to everyone who's an American football player who plays a certain position or who happens to be a rugby player who plays a certain position and has a certain role. So I think we can make those distinctions and those should be things that, at least in my movement philosophy, we can aspire to attaining a certain level of biomechanical efficiency within and we try to hammer home excellence in those types of habits because I know those habits are going to turn into patterns that are going to turn into behaviors and those behaviors we're going to be able to judge as either efficient or inefficient, effective or ineffective, and they're either going to be fast or slow. So they bear repeating because we need to go about learning ways to correct them as much as humanly possible but yet make them so the athlete, again, has the mastery of it. So I think there are things that you can say when we look at the most quality of mover. You know, we know that someone isn't going to be able to change direction very well biomechanically if they have a narrow base of support and a high center of gravity and those types of things. And they're, they're maybe more knee dominant or their heel is striking hard in deceleration in their penultimate step or something of that nature. Some of those things become attractors of their biodynamic structure or their solution in the organization of the movement pattern to overcome the respective problem that they're being presented to them in the sport environment. So do you, do you think in that case, it kind of makes a case that as uh, a coaching staff, not even just as strength and conditioning coaches, we need to be judging uh, our performance and the performance of the athlete more on within game statistics because I think you've made the point that as a strength and conditioning coach back in 2008, you did a fantastic job in, in bringing all those numbers down, but it didn't improve where it counts. And sometimes, as a strength and conditioning coach, this is what I've kind of, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a bitter pill to swallow for me this year, is that sometimes they might get a little bit worse at the stuff that I like to pat myself on the back on, but it's for the greater good of, of performance. And Kier, you made a perfect example there. Most strength and conditioning coaches will cringe when they hear about what I'm about to say next, in that... Many of my NFL players, when they first begin with me, will actually reduce their squat or their hand clean or their bench or what have you. But what happens is, is their actual working effect or their kinetic display, because we change both kinetics and kinematics as well as in their kinesiological pattern, they learn how to use their existing specific motor potential in better ways in the patterns and the skills that take place in the sport. So I don't care if their squat goes down, 
But all of a sudden, they're getting themselves in better positions and patterning as well as delivering more power in those patterns that are respective of the sport. And so it happens every single offseason, especially with guys that are new to me. They'll be like, Sean, what the fuck, man? They're like, my, my squat went down by 40 pounds and my strength coach on the team is all over me. And, and then I always have to turn it back around and be like, okay, let's see. How are you actually feeling you're performing on field in the patterns that you need to take place or that you need to, to execute with? based on your respective position that you play. And all of a sudden, you know, the answer is a resounding, well, that's considerably different. I'm considerably improved there. And when I kind of get that light bulb to go off in their head, that once they realize that unless they're at a low level of qualification and mastery, some of those numbers that we use as our litmus tests as strength and conditioning professionals or physical preparedness coaches aren't worth a handful of spit to us anymore because the guy... Is it isn't translating and transferring to the execution of the technical movement that they must perform on Sunday or whenever it is that their performance needs to take place in their sport. Once I can get that light bulb to go off for them, and I real and I get them to realize that their sport movement skill is what I'm after and what he should be after, all of a sudden things change for the much much better. So I commend you for being able to acknowledge that as a strength and conditioning professional too because it's sometimes a really bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of, a, a, speaking for me personally, that's a professional difficulty that I've had when if, if you say out loud in front of a group of other coaches, do you know what, I'm actually not too concerned about the, the squat, the deadlift, all that stuff, and they say, Yo, we've got a strength coach that doesn't care about strength. And to an extent, yeah, you're right, you know, I don't care because it's all about improving performance in what they're paid to do which is which is on the field and uh, you know i wrote down a note when you said that which was i, I forget his his uh, first name but the honey badger from lsu he was in the yeah. combine a few years ago and, and people you know laughed at him oh this guy got four reps on the 225 test but you play the guy's tape and he appears to me as an outsider just one of those athletes that gets every single drop of performance out of the the capabilities that he has and he, he appears to me to be a great mover and, and he absolutely is in fact um, two years ago when he came out of LSU and he now plays for the Arizona Cardinals, uh, I made a couple mentions on my blog, ironically enough, uh, and made comparisons of him to a guy that was a longtime athlete of mine who played defensive back here. Um, he played for both the, the Minnesota Vikings as well as in the Buffalo Bills and was a multiple-time All-Pro, um, Antoine Winfield, who was similar stature, similar general motor abilities or qualities in those measurables, if you will. But when you watch them on film, there's nobody that you'd rather have on your side going to battle with you because he's making every single one of those plays. And we're talking about a guy who, um, over numerous years in his career, he led all defensive backs and tackles. But he would do the same thing as Tyron Matthew, that honey badger dude that you mentioned, in some of those combine-type drills or tasks. But it really didn't matter once the coin was flipped and the ball was kicked. You'd rather have that guy on your team than the other guy who put up the measurables. And it, it's it's funny, the the flip side of that was uh, Jadavian Clowney coming out of the, the combine recently. You see those numbers, you think a 265-pound guy running as it, like a 4-5-40. And me being an Exos coach, people had talked about this guy coming out of the, the Florida um, facility. And I was just, I think I searched for his, his combine tape and your blog came up. And there was a blog there. And in, in a nutshell, your blog was like, mm, don't be so sure. And, you know, sure enough, the, the year that he had some injuries, but the year he had, 
it was a great example of this guy has huge, huge motor potential, and yet he wasn't quite able to, to translate that to the field, which I found incredibly interesting. Well, and that's exactly right. When I did my scouting report on him, because on Football Beyond the Stats, I often do scouting reports, as you probably have found out, um, are, which are essentially movement analysis of the tape. And as I watched him, even in some of his drills at his pro day, which are fairly pre-planned type activities and actions, he was already not utilizing what I would refer to as some of those attractors that we talked about of good, fluid, efficient, and effective movement. You know, he, he was playing rather high, and he ended up in a crossover in many cases when he had to re-accelerate out of a deceleration or plant or cut. And he often got himself in very compromising positions that led to numerous energy leaks and compensational positions that eventually led to his, you know, somewhat demise and dysfunction that ended up in the surgeries that put him on IR or injured reserve and ended his season last year. And I'm not one to say I told you so because I'm not trying to wish for a guy to get injured or hope for that ever. But when I released my scouting report, I had people hating on me on the blog and people send me personal messages like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to see this guy's a freak of nature, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that may very well be the case if he's running this fast or he's, he's jumping this high or this far or he's, you know, weighs this much or whatever it might be. Like you said, he's got this motor potential, but is he putting it to the best possible use in the patterns and the skills and the actions that take place on the field? That was the question that I was raising, and the point that I was making during my analysis was, I believe that there's a lot further that he can go in those regards. So, talking about uh, skill acquisition and being able to take you know, what's in your head and, and the perfect model that you have in your head and putting it into the athlete's head, how, how are you going to develop an athlete and, and teach them to move in the context that you want? Yeah, I think for me, I kind of deconstruct to reverse engineer their movement, if you will. So as I analyze and watch their movement on tape, again, I'm going through play-by-play, play um, game-by-game, frame-by-frame to make sure that I'm trying to figure out the three B's of their movement, brain, behavior, biomechanics. So what strategies are they employing? Are they looking at the right things? How is their sensory, perceptual, and then motor control? How is that all being to get, put together then on film, in their movement, in their solutions to overcome the problems? Their biodynamic structure, if you will, of their movement patterns. So then I'm basically making subjective evaluations. Here's where the weaknesses are. And here's where the strengths are. Obviously, we can't detract too much from the strengths because each one of my guys is a National Football League player. So I can't detract too much from the strengths because if I do, I mean, I might be taking away what makes them who they are to begin with. So I'm just trying to add little pieces to change those weaknesses to give them uh, greater dexterity in their movement, if they will. So they increase their level of skill acquisition, as you mentioned. But what I do is I go from essentially from part to whole or local to global, and usually from a pre-planned to a chaotic, slow to fast type fashion. And while I'm doing that in my drills, as I've reversed engineered those kind of situations that are arising, I'm constantly changing the constraints of tasks. To, so I can kind of guide that athlete to help him discover exactly some of those nuances of movement. I'm trying to improve upon his sensory system as well as in his perception 
of that sensory information that he's gaining as well as in the processing of both of those things so he can then gain greater um, dexterity as I made the mention so he has more solutions more degrees of freedom if you will in his movement patterns in carrying out the right biomechanical positions along those movement bandwidths that I talked about before. So we're not, we're looking at essentially a Nikolai Bernstein type idea of repetition without repetition, if you've heard that said before. So Nick, when Nikolai Bernstein said that, he was basically saying that we're trying to help that athlete gain greater perceptual control as well as in the biomechanical qualities and characteristics to be um, overcoming that problem, maybe not in the exact same identical fashion, but in one that's functional, one that allows the, the control and the coordination pattern to emerge based on the ever-changing environment of the task. So for me, what I do is I essentially do what I refer to as deliberate practice of movement. And now many coaches and practitioners will hear deliberate practice and they automatically think, well, that just means repetition after repetition, 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 repetition. And for me, that's kind of the case but I'm not looking for identical execution. I'm looking to change the task almost each and every time that they perform it. And so therefore the athlete gains error detection and correction. So then not only in my communication and instruction, I try to get him to get more awareness and focus his intention on the things and the pieces that he needs to, whether it's the perceptual qualities of his opponent so he learns certain affordances for action. So when he sees a guy coming at him and that person is maybe offset in one direction, he knows that he can work them with a feint or a fake in one way and then move to the other with a couple of different types of movement strategies. Okay, so I'm trying to give him affordances for action, but I'm also trying to help him draw awareness in regards to what he's feeling. So when the rep is complete, he knows and can communicate to me, this is what I did wrong, and here's what I should do the next time. So it becomes a different representation in his brain. It's more mindful movement, if you will. So I'm always trying to direct his attention towards those things as I chunk the movement pattern as necessary to go from part to whole. And I also am not hesitant to slow down the movement at first before I speed it up in order to improve upon that error detection and correction. So I'm trying to kind of improve upon his sensory and perceptual qualities so he can process that better and then it can lead to greater, more optimal control due to the ever-changing environment of the sport. So again, repetition without repetition and not repetition after repetition. So is that kind of like a schema theory where you take a general idea and then learn how to adapt it to a changing environment? Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, people will criticize, obviously, the, the open loop or closed loop ideas of motor control, as I will as well, based on some of the problems that exist with it. But in Schmidt's ideas of the schema theory or the generalized motor program, we learn to adjust or kind of calibrate some of that information of the motor program based on the ever-changing environment of sport. And that's really what um, you know, Schmidt's theory of the generalized motor program or the schema theory would say, as well as then when we look at some ideas of ecological psychology or the dynamical systems theory. It's about the organism or the athlete performing the task within the confines and the, the constraints within the environment.
So within that model, are you making uh, accommodation for a particular athlete's learning style? Because I, th I think what you've talked about there a little bit requires a certain degree of intellect. And, you know, I've, I've certainly been doing that a lot more where we'll do a rep and they'll say, what did I do wrong? And I'll just hand them the iPad with the tape and say, well, you tell me. And then we can go through it that way. But I think that sometimes there are other athletes where you do need to spell it out because maybe they're, they're not the most cerebral. Do you, do you think you have to make a, allowances for that? I, I absolutely do. And, and Kira, I think that's a fantastic point that many coaches, we get locked into these coaching styles or we see a communication or a drill or instruction or feedback work to gain both motor performance, temporary acute motor performance, as well as in motor learning happen for a given athlete. And then we think that it's going to work the same way for each and every athlete. But I think the point that you made is that there are affordances based on the physical constraints of the organism. In the physical constraints of the organism are their learning style as well as in their current level of mastery. So we have to make certain um, allowances, if you will, based on our coaching style. I'm trying to be as inquisitive and intuitive as humanly possible at all times because what works for an athlete who maybe um, is, has a lower level of intellect or a, a shorter, shallower understanding of where his body is spatially and temporally when he performs a movement action versus a guy who is super cerebral and is in his own head and can articulate certain things to me. My communication style has to change drastically. And, and I think that's something that we need to think about more in, in regards to some of the coaching science that we look at, both our cueing through our instruction as well as then um, again, our feedback, you know, you made the mention of being able to just hand the iPad to a guy and be like, here, you tell me, you show me. I'll sometimes pose that to some of my more cerebral movers and, and, and try to get them to think and articulate, here's what I did wrong, here's what I should have done, and here's what I would like to work on on the very next time that that situation may arise. Even if that situation isn't the very next rep because we're maybe in random practice or something of that nature. You know, we... Here in, in the NFL, actually, in the National Football League, we have this thing called the Wonderlick test. And I don't know if you guys have it there, but it's basically a, a basic test of intellect or IQ, if you will. It's something that they do at the combine. And some coaches want to just completely sweep it under the rug and disregard it. Whereas I believe that there's a huge correlation between a guy's Wonderlick score in the way that they think or process information, how quickly they can do it, as well as in the level of coaching that I can give them, the depth of the communication that I can offer them, as well as in maybe some of the ways that I draw attention to the aspects of their movement. So I think it's a it's a cool thing that we should think about, and it's one thing that we got to make sure we don't get set in our ways. Otherwise, we're going to shortchange that athlete's motor skill and movement skill acquisition in the learning that they could actually get from our instruction and feedback. So I think it's a great point that you brought up and made um, that, that we should look to kind of uh, more randomized or become variable with ourselves to kind of see what makes movement sticky for a guy when we see improvement in their actual display of movement. And do you think there's a case there as well that you are willing to sacrifice motor performance in the short term to get more retention in the long term? Yeah, and I'm glad that you asked that because I believe that 
again, because we're usually looking for more objective quantitative measures as a strength and conditioning coach or a physical preparedness specialist or a movement coach, we often drive towards acute motor performance. But what we have to remember is motor performance and motor learning might not be two in the same. We're looking for learning eventually for most athletes, unless you know we rewind and go back to that one example that you made earlier, where you're trying to have athletes race against one another. There, you're probably looking for acute uh, motor performance, and if we're like pre-game or our, uh, um, you know, we're within the actual competitive season, there we're likely looking for more motor performance. But definitely, if we're in the off season or we're utilizing methodologies and means that are directed towards enhancing the practice or the display of movement, I believe that at that point that we should look towards motor learning methods. And then we might realize that our practice methods or our practice structure in our day might be a little messier. And if it's a little messier, that might be that the actually the athlete is just learning. It, it has nothing to do with their acute motor performance, but it's what we could hope to have happen later on. And we must realize that they're not two in the same, that motor learning or motor performance could be indicative of motor learning down the road, but yet it might not be what's happening or how well that athlete is learning or acquiring skill if we're measuring something on that given day. Another time to feel uncomfortable as a coach. <laughs> yes, absolutely it is because I've had times where you know, maybe the, the player's agent comes in and we just happen to be on a day that, that we have more of a chaotic environment, more of an open environment, and I'm expecting mistakes to happen everywhere. And they're like, what in the hell am I paying you for? This guy doesn't look like he's attaining anything. He actually looks like he's much worse. And in fact, what I try to get the guys to do, we have this phrase around here that call, that's called comfy being uncomfy. Like we want to push towards a learning zone and only when we're uncomfortable, not uncomfortable physically maybe, but more uncomfortable mentally and emotionally because we're, we're in that learning zone, that might be the best possible place for that athlete to be because they don't understand or are aware of where they are yet. So if we look at some of those kind of models or stages of motor learning, whether if we look at like the Fitz and Posner way of looking at things and they're getting more cognitive and, and associative to try and make that happen more autonomously or whether we're looking at more of like a Nikolai Bernstein, Carl Newell type approach of motor skill acquisition where that athlete is trying to, to gain greater control of the coordinative structure and how they perform that so they can optimize the movement pattern. Whichever school of thought you are in in regards to movement skill acquisition, both of them, in both of those models, the athlete has to make associations between what's happening in the environment and how they have to execute biomechanically as well as behaviorally in order to overcome that. Sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's chaotic, and sometimes mistakes are learning. So t taking that idea and, and, and talking a little, about, a little bit about agility, you've written a lot about uh, agility on your blog. And uh, again, a, an, another example from this, my own experience was, you know, I had a, let's call it a discussion with another coach where, uh, we're going to test agility, and the test of agility was a uh, a five ten five uh, in a closed environment, and we were just going to time it. And if we could make that go up, the guys were going to get more agile in the field. And my opinion was, well, this is meaningless in terms of how agile they are on the field. And um, he said, why? Well, I said, well, you know, ultimately, if we look at 
what is the defining characteristic of whether what makes a successful or an unsuccessful performance on the field. It's rarely the, the motor qualities, and it's to do with the, the perceptual aspects of being able to detect aspects within the environment and select an appropriate response. And the problem with that is, is that when I think about it, that I'm terrible at that. So how do we as coaches get better at developing those qualities? And do we, do we need to work with sport coaches to do that? I think we do because I have found that in like this constraints-led approach, once you start reverse engineering, as I mentioned earlier, and you start kind of deconstructing the movement skill, you want to make sure that as you're doing that, you're not diluting or detracting from the perception-action coupling or the information-movement coupling. So whichever way you want to look at it, the information or the perception of that informational constraint is going to determine our action and our movement. And it's a cycle here. It continues to go around. We can't come up with an appropriate movement response until we understand the problem of the environment. And we can only gain that from our perception of the informational constraints. And therefore, we have to do a better job attempting to understand how that athlete um, is performing in the environment, what they're feeling, what they're seeing, what they're perceiving to be the case before we can look at what the most appropriate level of action will be or what the appropriate action response will be. And I believe that we should be working hand-in-hand more uh, in-depthly with coaches uh, of the sport. What I have found in American football, unfortunately, is a lot of times those coaches, those sport coaches, are so directed towards X's and O's and the tactical demands that they don't flip and understand what the hell is going on when the athlete is in the environment of the sport either. Even some of those athletes who played in the sport might not know what they're sensing and perceiving. But once we start to design more constraints-led based type activities, we can maybe change the way that that environment is formed for that athlete. And some of those patterns, some of that control and coordination will start to emerge as that athlete starts to read and recognize patterns as well as then recall the patterns or the strategies that they have kind of in their movement toolbox depending on how dex, what, what their level of dexterity, mastery, and virtuosity really is. So a guy might have a couple of different movement solutions in his pocket or in his toolbox to employ based on the affordances for action. You know, if a linebacker comes in the hole, I know that I want to get from, you know, point A where I'm at right now to point Z, which is the goal line, and, and this guy is deterring me and my locomotion from doing so. I have to get around him in some way, shape, or form, and that's truly agility. So I have to look for ways to read exactly where he's going, anticipate where he's going to go next. I have to determine his velocity and his spatial and temporal characteristics. And those are things that will determine how agile a performer is. And that's why some of my athletes find it funny because... I perform a lot of the drills with my athletes because oftentimes I'm the stimuli, if you will. So if it's a a running back, for example, I'll be the linebacker. And they can't shake me. And we're talking about National Football League players, sometimes all pros, you know, the best of their position. And they're like, Sean, what in the hell? Like, you're an old white dude. How am am I not able to shake you in the hole? And it's only because I've learned so much about their behavior and their display that I understand what they're going to try to do to shake me. So I'm in their way, and I can then kind of like kind of form 
to kind of guide their discovery towards what they should do next. Maybe I don't want them to perform a crossover anymore because it's a it's a running back who's you know six one or six two and he's got a high center of gravity already. I don't want him performing a crossover in maybe short spaces or or tight angles. I'd rather have him loading off of his outside foot and then pushing off into a reaccelerative step in a different fashion. And I can kind of form my drill based on how I see him perceiving and what I think he's going to do for action. Now, i got to know his movement inside and out in order to have that occur. But I believe that that's where we need to go. And hopefully some of that kind of makes sense. But you hit the nail right on the head here in the fact that a, a change of direction drill and an Agility drill are totally different, and until we redefine those things, you know, the change of direction just being the ability to start, stop, and change direction, but the agile mover being one who has to react and read and perceive some aspect of a stimuli in order to then act and start and stop and change direction is really the, the qualities of an agile performer. And I have found in the National Football League but that the two are not in the same. Those who can perform very well in change of direction tasks that don't have a reaction stimuli to respond to versus those who are very agile are often not the same guys. Yeah. You know, so I think it's an important thing to stick up for, like you did to the discussion that you had to the coach with that, that you just made the, the mention to. I, I think we all have to make sure that we come to those distinctions and try to understand what drills are we utilizing for change of direction and what ones are we using for true agility type tasks. Yeah. Now, what you've just talked about, just the amount of work that it would take to to be able to attack that kind of task in, I don't know, I think you said it's a 53-man roster in the National Football League. To me, it... It, to me, it sounds like a separate job to what we consider to be the traditional job of the strength and conditioning coach. Do you see the, the profession moving in that direction? And we're going to see a divergence between guys that specialize in movement and movement strategies and guys that are the traditional strength and conditioning coach. Or do we have to be doing both as, as physical preparation coaches? I'm really glad you asked that question because a number of years back, that same um, thought kind of came into my head. I was on field at, at a number of my guys' training camp practice, and I saw some of the things that both the strength and conditioning coaches were trying to instruct from a movement standpoint, as well as in the position coach. And, and this was probably three or four years ago, and all of a sudden this flipping light bulb went off in my head, and I'm like, what about a movement skill acquisition coach because we seem to have a staffer who is in charge of all kinds of things, but not the actual instrument that we are using in order to navigate, our, navigate ourselves around the problems that are inherent in the sport environment. And that, of course, is someone who's instructed or will instruct for the best possible movement patterns and movement strategies, as well as the attainment and acquisition of them. And so I kind of started making this push amongst the profession for guys to specialize more in those categories and those ideas that you just talked about. You know, right now, I don't know of anyone, at least in here in America, who uh, a team that is at either the professional or the collegiate level that actually is employing someone who is in charge just of movement. I know that there are some people internationally who are kind of skill acquisition coaches, and that would kind of go along with this same sense. 
you know, that it's more about the technical aspects of carrying out those fundamental um, solutions, coordination solutions, and that really is what the movement coach would be about. I hope at one point here that our profession starts to kind of have a divergence. The two still work together, but you have the physical preparation or strength and conditioning professional over here, and you have more of the movement skill acquisition coach over here. They can work together in order to come up with the best possible uh, solutions for that athlete to be able to carry out the movement patterns and tasks that that athlete must perform on the field. And... They can also work then in regards to the coordinators, the, the coaches and the position coaches as well as then the sport coaches and even the athletic trainers and doctors and sports scientists now as well. This is someone who can work very um, effectively, I believe, and I've kind of put some of those things on uh, football beyond the stats as well as I kind of made this push over the last number of years for the movement coach or the movement skill acquisition individual. And also, you're not going to be going for the same job interviews. <laughs> right. And, and, and that's the thing. So far, I've noticed resistance, ironically enough, from the strength and conditioning professionals. Because they're like, well, what the hell? You just want my job. And I want nothing to do with just, you know, spotting a guy on a squat or, or even any of the X's and O's programming of strength and conditioning in many cases. What I want to do is step in and interject in regards to the movement drill prescription the movement analysis, what you said of a 53-man roster or whatever your team is, and try to help instruct and give feedback and actually teach that athlete the positions and the patterns to take the best advantage of what those strength and conditioning coaches are actually getting from them. And, and then I've noticed resistance from the strength and conditioning professionals. The individuals who think it happens to be brilliant is the position coaches who are like, we love X's and O's, we love tactics, and we love strategies, but I don't really want to sit here and have to teach a backpedal over and over and over again, and I don't even know the most optimal way to backpedal. That's what the position coaches will tell me. Or I don't know the most optimal way to perform that cut in the hole, or whatever it might be. So they just do drills. They do what they've always done because they don't flip and know any better. And that's a problem because no one is then interjecting for the athlete's behalf in order to help them gain greater control, coordination, and optimization of the movement patterns and positions that they find themselves in. And it seems to me that it would be quite a nice complement to what each person is trying to achieve. You know, if you have somebody who's a better mover, they're more effective in their position for the position coach. They're in safer positions biomechanically for the physical therapist, and they're able to realize uh, motor potential more effectively on the field. Bingo. And, and I mean, you just said it best. You said it in a nutshell there, which I think is kind of the point that I'm trying to get across to people as well. I believe that it has to happen at all walks of life, especially when we know that motor skill and, and movement skill acquisition happens in different time scales for different individuals, depending on their level of qualification and mastery. So what works for one at one level isn't going to work for one at the other. And the same thing will have happen. what you just made the mention to. It, it will help everyone, again, from position coaches to strength and conditioning professionals to the sport coach to the sports science practitioners it works to kind of move around as the athlete is the hub of the wheel and everyone else just ends up being spokes. That's fantastic. Now, just give me some stuff to watch on YouTube later because this is a hobby of mine. Give me your five best movers in, in football because I'd love to check them out. Yeah. Um, well, last year and every year, 
on uh, on football beyond the stats. I made this kind of a trend or uh, a topic that I take a lot of pride in, uh, to where I name my mover of the year. And last year's mover of the year was Earl Thomas, the safety of the Seattle Seahawks. And Earl's a guy who, even though he has some freak athleticism, Earl finds himself finds himself in some situations playing safety in the NFL that is really truly repetition without repetition. But yet Earl seems to have a very wide movement bandwidth in these attractors that he's always back into reacceleration after whatever deceleration he has to, to do. Or, you know, he's able to move from point A to point Z regardless of what's deterring him. So Earl Thomas, safety of the, uh, of the Seattle Seahawks, was my mover of the year last year. I had some other guys that were kind of my finalists. Um, a guy by the name of Antonio Brown, wide receiver of the Pittsburgh Steelers, super masterful mover, not a big guy, a guy who's 5'10", 5'10 and a half and like 185, 190 pounds, but super explosive and, and you're going to find some things from him. Uh, Jamal Charles, running back from the Kansas City Chiefs, who last year, um, it would have been three years ago, he had an ACL and MCL injury that he came off of, was really only performing um, in some compromised movement strategies for the previous two years. But last year really started to see some comfort in some greater ownership of a wider base of support, uh, deeper, lower center of gravity, so deeper flexion at his hip, knee, and ankle. And he opened up his degrees of freedom and his movement solutions last year considerably. So he got much improved. Um, you'll see guys like Le'Veon Bell from the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, LaShawn McCoy, now of the Buffalo Bills, formerly of the Philadelphia Eagles. Those are kind of my higher level, higher end movers. Um, I think I might have named five there. But, uh, you know, even those guys over here, the funny thing is, is even when I watch them, what I've learned to do is kind of with a fine tooth comb is find things that they could do better. And so even those guys that you see that are our best movers, our most virtuous or masterful movers, can still improve. Fantastic. You know, I, I always tell people when they ask me, uh, who should I learn from? And I just said, anyone who makes you feel like a fraud and makes you feel like an idiot. And I've just had an hour of that, Sean. This has been fantastic. <laughs> I've um, page full of notes. I'm going to go stick my head in some books. And um, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me in a couple different places. Uh, the first one is my brand uh, called Movement Mastery, and that's at OptimizeMovement.com. Uh, if they sign up for my mailing list, my it's a free mailing list, is each and every week I give about a 10 to 15 minute video in regards to a movement skill acquisition topic uh, of my choice for that week. So I also have a membership site there. I'm not trying to be pushy, but uh, I got a free site as well as a membership site there at OptimizeMovement.com. They can also find me at FootballBeyondTheStats.wordpress.com. Uh, so the world's longest uh, URL address there, FootballBeyondTheStats.wordpress.com. But uh, rugby professionals, I think, would find a lot of intriguing information because it's a football, American football-based website. But I really go about breaking down the movement patterns and the tasks of the game's best week by week. Uh, and I supply a lot of free information on there that I think a lot of professionals that are viewers of your stuff um, will probably enjoy. I can certainly vouch for that. Um, thank you once again. This has been awesome.
It's been my pleasure, Kieran. I definitely appreciate uh, the time as well as in the listening of your people. And uh, anytime you want to have me back, I'm always game to ramble on. And hopefully I was able to kind of give you some insight and answer some of your questions throughout the time there. Absolutely. Thanks, Sean.